Let's continue worship with a reading from Matthew 14, 22 to 33. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated as you greet one or two neighbors. Middle school, you're dismissed to your classroom. Hey, y'all. I'm Chris, lead teaching pastor here at Riverstone. Glad you're here. Uh, last, if you were with us last week, last week was Easter, uh, we pointed out how the disciples struggled uh, through the resurrection. They struggled with the resurrection. And as we saw them mourning the death of Jesus, um, the process of them actually understanding that he came back to life was wrought with doubt. Just pointed it out to you guys. They struggled, like embarrassingly struggled, to believe that he had actually risen again, despite the fact the women telling him, despite Jesus himself saying, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be risen, risen, roused, roused. That's the one. Uh, From the dead. This is going to happen. Jesus told them over and over and over again. And yet the emotional impact of his death left them reeling. And they were just slow, even to trust their closest friends. When they came back and said, y'all, the tomb's empty. They said to them, remember from last week, they told the ladies, quit talking crazy and let us grieve, right? And maybe the most salient example of their doubts with the resurrection was in Matthew 28, when Jesus physically appeared to the disciples. Uh, And it says they worshiped, but some doubted. Fascinating book, the Bible. So we said, man, listen, why don't we talk about Um, or walk with the disciples through this season of doubt and just ask questions like, what's happening? Let's sit with them as they struggled uh, and and go all the way up to Pentecost. And it's quite a story. Now, today, we're barely going to get to the disciples. We're just going to wrestle with faith and doubt. All right. And now, but some of you might say, why would we do that, Chris? Aren't you supposed to encourage us in faith, (laughs) hope, belief? Um, That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm saying, hold fast to the reality behind your faith. I'm saying, don't settle for frothy, unexamined, socially constructed, culturally hijacked version of faith. I'm saying, there is something transcendent behind the shell of 
modern Christianity, something that is larger and more substantial, that's rooted in the Bible and the history and in the experience of God, that does not crumble under honest, thoughtful doubts and questions. Number two, I'm trying to show you that doubt is a part of the human experience. It's actually part of the process to authentic belief for most. I I don't know many people that that get into this thing saying they never had questions or doubts, right? No matter how supernatural it gets, y'all, we still have doubts. Even in in the, the disciples, for example, in the face of a supernatural resurrection, even after it, we see them struggling with it. Parts of us, y'all, lag behind. And it's often our minds lagging behind what our hearts know to be true. And this is true in all sorts of areas of life. Now, Christianity, especially charismatic Christianity, especially that stream, um, they have long been accused of turning their brain off and just believing the unbelievable in a kind of frothy experiential ignorance to reality. Are you familiar with accusations like that against Christianity? And what we said is uh, last week is that many Christians in many Christian circles, a kind of um, social pressure chamber of belief exists. What do I mean by this? A social pressure chamber of belief. And you can liken that to, to like Tinkerbell. Remember Tinkerbell? We said this last week. Remember Tinkerbell from Peter Pan? And, it, you know, she's like dying and disappearing. And they're all like, believe, clap if you believe, clap if you believe. Everybody clap, right? You there, clap, you know. <laughs> and some of us, our experience of Christian circles is basically like that. You're hanging out with these people and there's a lot of social pressure to believe things that you really don't know if you believe. But man, you feel like you have to believe or you're not going to get it. Uh, hanging over the, sun, over the door of many churches is an invisible sign that says, well, you're welcome, but your doubts aren't. You can belong if you believe, but if you don't believe, you can't belong, right? Tinkerbell religion creates an atmosphere, whether you are Christian or not, uh, perhaps that you're welcome, but your doubts aren't. Let me just make a few comments about this atmosphere, okay? The atmosphere of a social pressure chamber of belief. I mean, let me just suggest a few things to you if this is what you've experienced or maybe you're like this is what i'm in right now what are you talking about okay um in reality an atmosphere in which we are clingy and dependent on other people to believe something often comes from an insecurity in our own faith we have a faith that's weak and fragile and if everyone else isn't socially propping it up it falls like a house of cards and many of us in our hearts of hearts are afraid that christianity is like that We're afraid that if we're not all believing, it will crumble. Well, your experience will crumble, yes. The reality of the cross, the Holy Spirit, God creating all things is under no threat of crumbling under your disbelief. That is reality. It is what's behind our faith. Our inability or insecurity to believe those things will only inform your experience of life. Like we said last week, the sun will keep shining if we bury ourselves in a cave and say, there's no sun. No, you're just not getting the sun. But many of us, in many, in many uh, social circles, it really comes from this insecurity of our own faith. And we think everyone has to confidently assert this or it's not as real. That's just not how faith works, at least not in the Bible. And number two, uh, it's catastrophic. This social pressure chamber of faith is catastrophic because it further creates an unexamined faith. It creates an atmosphere where you cannot ask real questions. A 
kind of Christian ignorance is bliss, turn up the newsboys a bit louder. And so because this person is insecure in their faith, they've not given any real study or analysis or ask any hard questions. And so when someone intelligent walks in the room or someone intelligent grows up in the church and asks hard questions, they get booed out of the room. And it creates an atmosphere of dishonesty. Is that what we want? We want to hang out with a bunch of people that are just lying to themselves about things? No, dude, we want an honest atmosphere where the reality of our lives can intersect with the power of God. And so if we don't have an atmosphere where we can't ask hard questions, what do we have? You just have a social, you have Tinkerbell faith. Dude, it's not as easily threatened, y'all. It's so much more secure than a house of cards. It's so much more robust and foundational and historic. You're standing on the shoulders of thousands and thousands of years of Christian history that is hard to explain if this is all made up. Your faith, the Christian faith, maybe you're not a Christian, but the Christian faith is substantial enough to endure the scrutiny, all the scrutiny that you can rouse. It is. Let me read you a quote from Tim Keller. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through faith too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about what they believe as they do, why they believe as they do, will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflections. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and their neighbors. It is no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. Only if you struggle long and hard with objections to your faith will you be able to provide the grounds for your belief to skeptics, including yourself, that are plausible rather than ridiculous or offensive. And just as important for our current situation, such a process will lead you, even after you come to a position of strong faith, to respect and understand those who doubt. Tim Keller's a formidable thinker, and it's worth us reflecting on his perspective. So today, now, here's the deal. As much as I love sermons that like start with a premise and then logically go through and by the end we're all just worshiping and sacrificing, you know, whatever, um, it's not going to happen today. It's going to be, it's going to be more, we'll get back to that, okay? Um, this is going to be just more of an intellectual exploration of doubt and faith. And we're going we're to check into some scriptures about it, okay? Um, today we're just going to start a conversation. And to do that about doubt and about faith, we have to call out the elephants in the room, right? That's what you got to do when you start conversations like this. And a lot of times it means defining terms. All right. So the first elephant in the room when we're talking about doubt and faith is this. Number one, faith is kind of a big deal in the Bible. Isn't that the cutest elephant you've ever seen? (laughs) You love it, don't you? Like those googly eyes. Let's all just stare at the elephant for a second. Um, Faith is kind of a big deal in the Bible. Primarily around, the persons, primarily around the person of Jesus. The question, who is Jesus, is hands down the question being wrestled with in the four Gospels. And who is the Messiah is actually the question the entire Old Testament is running up to, is setting up. Who is the Messiah? It is safe to say, y'all, that the entire Bible is pointing to this one figure, 
the anointed, the redeemer, the Christ. And what I love about the Bible is it does not come out, it doesn't come flat out and say, this is what you should think. Especially in the gospels. They just tell you the story. They show you the facts. They say, and then they say, you're an adult. Make up, make up your mind about this man, Jesus. But what's clear is this issue of trust, of faith, of belief is central to your participation and access in Christianity. So much so that we call it saving faith. It's a big deal, faith, belief. It's unmistakably clear in scripture over and over. You cannot be redeemed without trusting God is who he says he is. Let me show you some things. Matthew 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe, you're gonna be condemned. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. Dude, it's a big deal. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Romans 5, 2, through him we have, through him we have also obtained access by faith. Your access into the deal is through this thing called faith and belief, right? Into this grace in which we stand, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So this idea of trust is actually the door to be a Christian. It's the door. If you can't trust, you can't walk into grace. It's the mechanism of how we engage with God. But it also opens up your experience of God here and now. It gives you access. In Matthew 13, Jesus didn't do many miracles in his hometown because of their lack of faith. Acts 15:9, God actually cleanses hearts. He's talking about the Gentiles. By faith, cleanses your hearts. It acts on you. It does things. Galatians 3.14. Dude, you received the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. Philippians 3.9 says our righteousness, the righteousness of God, is dependent on faith in Jesus. Okay, it's a big deal. You knew that, okay? This idea of faith and trust, so central to the Christian life that we're told in Romans 1, the righteous shall live by faith. Dude, okay? 2 Corinthians 5.7 so central that he says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Okay, the entire Christian life is to be guided by this thing, whatever it is. Belief, faith, whatever that word means, it's totally foundational. So when we say doubt is an important process that we should have patience with, I'm not saying you don't really need to believe to be a Christian. I'm saying what we're acknowledging is for many people, this journey to saving faith is not a flip of a switch but it's a process. For some, a process of years and years of struggling through their own cynicism, through their own difficult experiences before the, the clouds lift and they, be, they begin to believe in who Jesus is. So what's, what's faith? What is faith? When the New Testament says faith, it's not talking about giving mental assent to a notion that a guy lived 2,000 years ago. It's not what it's talking about. It is never faith as an isolated characteristic you drum up. It is talking about faith in terms of relationship. How does that work out? Well, let's change the word, trust. That's what it's talking about. It isn't saying just believe this guy existed. It's, you could say it this way. It's not simply believing Jesus existed. It's believing Jesus. It's trusting in his ideas, his view of the world. It's putting confidence in what he says. It's not believing he existed like we believe in Santa Claus. It's believing him, that he was right about the world about God, about the cosmos, that he is who he says he was. When the New Testament says faith, it means trusting the words and claims of Jesus himself, 
trusting what he taught, believing he was right about the world, right? Over and over and over again. It's not just faith. It's faith in Jesus. And if that word to you has lost all its meaning, just replace it with trust. You understand how trust works in any relationship, don't you? Trust has to be earned. Trust is something that after years and years of knowing people, you begin to anticipate they will be faithful. They're going to do what they say. That's what we're talking about. The idea of faith in the Bible is that we relationally believe that Jesus will do what he says he will do because of his track record. That's what we're talking about, relational trust. In fact, I think it's fair to say that the whole biblical story is one long story of God trying to prove to humanity he is trustworthy. That culminates in God himself coming to man, wrapping himself in flesh, coming to earth, taking the consequences of all the things God had repeatedly told us not to do onto himself to finally, fully, and forever say, I do have your best intentions in mind. Now trust me when it comes to what brings life. You did the entire Bible, especially the Gospels, is the process of God saying to you at the heart level over and over and over again, I'm trustworthy. Look at my track record. Look at how I deal with the oppressed. Look at how I invite the outsiders in. Look at how I eat with the misfits and the sinners. Look at my creative goodness. I'm trustworthy. You can trust me. I am who I say I am. I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And over and over and over, narrative after narrative after narrative in the Bible is getting at this one thing at the heart level to you. Will you trust him? Will you believe he is who he says he is, right? Inviting you into an historical trust, a founded trust, a reasonable trust, in which you look back over history and see the track record of someone who is trustworthy. John Piper points out, unwarranted trust, blind faith, which many people would say that's all Christianity is, is blind faith. You're leaping into the unknown, hoping maybe God catches you in the afterlife. He says, blind faith does not glorify the person you trust in. It just makes you look irresponsible and maybe desperate. What does he mean by this? He gives us a parable. John Piper says this. Let's say you see a man. He's frantically looking around, all disheveled, got a bag. He's clearly looking for help. You're trying to avoid eye contact. You accidentally make eye contact. Now you're in. He runs up to you, hair all, you know, he's crazy looking. Here's a, here's a million dollars in this bag, he says. Hold it for me tomorrow. Runs away. Does that honor you? Does that point out that you're trustworthy? No, you're just a rant. He was just desperate idiot. Like, who knows who you are? You could be a, you could be a thief, liar. You're like, a million bucks. I'm never going to see that dude again. I'm out. Moving to freaking Bahama, right? He doesn't know who you are. doesn't honor you. But let's, okay, let's look about this picture. Let's say a man walks up to you. He says, I've been watching you. You're like, creeper. <laughs> he says, I've been watching you from my desk across the office for two years. And I've seen how you handle money. I've seen that you're trustworthy with secrets. I've seen how you are faithful with the little. And I have confidence that you're a person with integrity because I've been watching you. And I trust you more than any other person in our office with this bag. There's a million dollars in this bag. I'll be back tomorrow to get it. Will you keep it safe for me? Now that honors you, doesn't it? Because it's based on who you are that you are a trustworthy person. It's based on your track record. And others see this, and they think, wow, that person really must be worthy of trust indeed. See, Piper gives us this parable to say, our trust in Jesus is not a blind, unwarranted trust. And if it was, it wouldn't glorify Jesus. It would just rather be pointing to our desperate need, maybe even recklessness. Now, many people come to faith in Jesus out of desperate need. That's true. But Jesus wants you to grow past that. He wants you to begin to see him as trustworthy, 
as someone who is wiser and smarter and more capable than you, and that he is worthy to be trusted even with your very life, dependable, credible, intelligent, right? When it comes to the most important things in life. Okay, so when the New Testament talks about faith, it means relational trust, credible trust, primarily that we believe Jesus is a credible source, that, what he, that he is who he says he is and did what he said he did. And based on the evidence available to us, what else can you have? That's called faith. What's the evidence available to us? Well, the miracles we've seen, the resurrection, the Bible, the history of the persecuted Christian church, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, what's doubt? Let's think about it. What's doubt? Well, in the context of what we're talking about, it's doubting Jesus is who he says he is. So that's definitely what doubt means in the context of Christianity. But we need to ask what causes doubt outside of Christianity. We need to explore doubt as a psychological phenomenon. What is doubt? It's not that we just doubt Jesus. We doubt our friends. We doubt a story. We doubt someone's abilities. We doubt our abilities. What is doubt? Well, let's think of the example we saw with Peter, all right? Peter walks out on water to Jesus. You remember the story, you read it beforehand. And if you recall what we just read, uh, it's dark, it's in the middle of the night. Apparently there's a bit of a storm going on because the wind's ripping around. And Peter walks out in Matthew 14, 30, it says this, but when he saw the wind, him being Peter, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Okay, does anyone else feel like this is an absurd question? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> I, I'll tell you why he doubted. First of all, walking on water is impossible. Second of all, it's nighttime. Nighttime's scary, right? He was afraid, right? He's in the middle of a lake and a storm, right? He began to sink. There's lots of reasons he doubted Jesus, right? In short, why did he doubt? Well, all of the realities, all of the things that are rightly scary took center stage in his mind. And it caused what? Fear, anxiety, insecurity. Now, here's the question. Had any of the stuff Jesus had done up until that point, all the miracles, all the heart-piercing teachings, all the compassion, had any of that changed in the moment? Had Jesus' credibility changed at all in the moment? No. What changed? It was a combination of what Peter was looking at on the outside and how he was interpreting those facts on the inside. Outside evidence, internal prioritizing of the evidence. He was, the dude was walking on water, bro. Like that was real physical evidence that he could have looked at, but he looked at something else. Jesus, this trustworthy man, who is the most, in, the most integrity, the most reliable, like the most wise man he had ever met. I mean, this dude left his life to follow this guy. He saw something trustworthy in this dude. Wait, I mean, just risked his all life on it, right? Did any of that change? No. What changed? What he was giving his attention to. No way the evidence hadn't changed. What he saw outside was wind. Stormy waters, right? And this, he's walking on it, which is right berserk. We can't, I mean, anyone ever tried? Like, seriously, come on. Anyone ever tried? Like, you know, just to see, right? And he has this visceral, I got one, visceral knee-jerk response as he begins to sink into the water. And the, what, the, the thought obviously coming into his head is this is not safe, right? An overwhelming fear. As trustworthy as he knew Jesus, as, Jesus was, Right? As much as Peter believed mentally in Jesus, he said, my experience right now is coming in conflict with your credibility. Can I say that again? My experience right now is coming in conflict with your credibility, Jesus, in my mind. And what's happening is all the things around me are causing me to question, not like my decisions, <laughs> right? but who you are. 
that you maybe aren't trustworthy. Now, let's ask a question. Did he have good reason to fear? Yeah. It was a real storm, dude. <laughs> it was real wind ripping up the water against his flesh, stinging his face, right? He was walking on water, for goodness sake. He had all sorts of things to be terrified of. The power and impact of Peter's doubt is very fascinating in this story, isn't it? One moment, he's up. And the next moment, he's down. I think of when you're trying to teach someone to water ski. They're up. Oh, they're down. Go back around, right? It's the mere psychology of belief. Your doubts or belief will often dictate your ability in real life. This is just true. I can't tell you how many times I've been rock climbing, having a great time. Some of us went yesterday. Whoop, whoop. It was awesome. Um, and I'm having a great time, right? Beautiful day. I'm up on the rock. It's lovely. It's great. And then I look down. Everything changes. It's very fascinating. Uh, did everything change? No. No. I'm still strapped in. Rope is good. Harness is tight. I'm at the exact same height I was before I looked down. What changed? Your attention changed. My focus shifted to external realities. Were they real? Absolutely, they were real. And what did they cause? Anxiety and doubt and insecurity. I can't do this. Right? Elvis leg on the rock. You know that one? Right? Baby deer legs. Right? This is what happens with Peter. His attention goes from Jesus' strength to his own. And down he goes in doubt. Now look, what, what, what does Jesus do? This is very important. If you miss this, you miss everything. What does Jesus do when you falter? What does Jesus do when you doubt, when you fear, when you look around and the realities around your life become so oppressive you despair if you'll ever make it out? What does Jesus do? Does he say, you weakling, man up, Peter, just a little water. You're a fisherman. Come on, put your big boy pant on. Is that what he did? Is that what Jesus does to you? Look, we giggle. You think God does that to you. You think I can't doubt. I can't have weakness. I can't ask real questions. I can't be honest in church. Right? What do we think God does to us when we falter? When we think I'm never going to get out of this? When we think the darkness is too dark, the, the waves are over my head, I'm not getting out. What does Jesus do? Immediately, he reaches out his hand and took hold of him. If you miss this, you miss the gospel. If you miss this, you miss everything. If Jesus hadn't reached out and grabbed him in his doubt, he would have gone down to the depths. If you miss this, you miss everything. You miss the gospel. You miss why we worship. You miss why creation bows down before Jesus, the Son of God. So psychologically, where does doubt come from? Disconnect from the religious domain for a sec. Let's just ask a question. When we hear something, a claim, a story, when someone says, one time I saw a man healed of blindness. Or think about this sentence. You could do a backflip. Go ahead, try all of us had differing levels of doubt and belief at those two sentences, right? Where does it come from? Well, essentially, there's two layers, and we hinted at it with Peter. Doubt is essentially internal or external opposing evidence to what you prior believed. It's internal or external opposing evidence. In other words, you have to acknowledge we have doubts from within that come from our own emotional state. Based on your past experiences of failure, betrayal, maybe you're just tired, and that's why you're not going to do a backflip right now. I could, but I'm just tired. 
Maybe you try to do a backflip once and you got a concussion. So no, I cannot do a backflip. There's internal and external realities, right? That's just plain facts, right? There's an external reality, verifiable objective truth, which you're like, I can't do a backflip. It's verifiably, you know, you know, right? Or maybe the verifiable accepted truth that everyone agrees on externally is that blind people don't see. That's just, it's physically, scientifically impossible. That's the facts. Therefore, I doubt that you are right, Chris. When you said that man got his sight back, it's based on hard facts, verifiable external reality. So I heard Pastor John Tyson talking about this the other day. He said, psychologists have known uh, doubt and fear, uh, I'm sorry, doubt and faith come from how we construct reality as individuals. How, what, this, this determines what we think is possible, how we construct reality. And you know how we construct reality? It's facts plus values equals reality. So facts is external observable evidence that everyone agrees on. Those are the facts. Values are your subjective emotions. Values are, are what you think about this, right? And if you want to be crazy and what you think about, that's fine. So what they've done is they've said, let's have a downstairs and an upstairs in reality, in, in the cosmos, right? And downstairs is the facts we can all agree upon. These are what makes society work. We all agree that this is fact, right? This is like workplace HR, all right? This is like laws in government, civil things, physically verifiable truths that we all have to agree on. You have to agree on this if you're going to be in our society. Upstairs is your emotional thoughts and beliefs. Up there, you can do whatever you want. You believe that the royal family is a lizard family? Go for it. You can be crazy. Just leave it upstairs. Don't come downstairs. All right? Leave it up there. You can be crazy. You want to believe a dude rose from the dead 2,000 years ago? That's fine. Just leave it upstairs. It's values, all right? Now, what's interesting is Tyson points out that modern people have taken Jesus and they have put him upstairs. Instead of, of historically verifiable reality, they've said that belongs with Santa Claus and Tinkerbell. And you can do that if you want. You can be crazy up there, just leave it upstairs. Don't let it come down here, despite the fact that the reason it's uh, 2023 is that that man split history in half, right? So we have facts that we see, and then we have internal emotional state by which you interpret those facts. Is everyone with me? Okay, I know we're getting a little intellectual today. So for the disciples, Jesus was dead. Their internal emotional state then informed how they responded to the facts that came to them that he was risen. And they said, no, he isn't. But my point here is that modern people like to pretend we live our lives totally rationally totally logically and totally based on facts alone. James K. Smith says we live like we are brains on a stick. <laughs> so in other words, we define reality by complete logic and we're all completely rational, right? We interpret reality completely logically. But my point is that your emotional state plays a bigger part than you want to admit when it comes to your doubts and beliefs. The evidence may not have changed at all, right? But our emotional state has and what we're giving our attention to has and all of a sudden I can't do this. I can't climb this rock. I can't do a backflip, duh. And Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I'm out. So let me read to you um, a portion of C.S. Lewis talking about this, and then we'll wrap it up. Again, we're only starting a conversation today. C.S. Lewis says this, talking about uh, faith. I was assuming that if the human mind once accepted a thing as true, it will automatically go on regarding it as true until some real reason for reconsidering it turns up. In fact, I was assuming the human mind is completely ruled by reason, but that is not so. For example, my reason is perfectly convinced by good, good evidence that anesthetics do not smother me and that a properly trained surgeon 
will not start operating until I am unconscious. But that does not alter the fact that when, we, when they have me down on the table and clap their horrible mask over my face, a mere childish panic begins inside me, and I start thinking I'm going to choke, and I'm afraid they will start cutting me up before I am properly under. In other words, I lose my faith in anesthetics. It is not reason taking away my faith. On the contrary, my faith is based on reason. It is my imagination and my emotions. The battle is between faith and reason on one side and emotion and imagination on the other. Now, faith in this sense, which I'm here using the word, is the art of holding on to things your reason has accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change. Whatever view your reason takes. I know this by experience. Now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can neither be a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. So you see, he's pointing out the upstairs and the downstairs. And he's saying, you know, it's the upstairs that can really dictate how you interpret the downstairs. So today, all we're really doing is admitting that faith and doubt is much more complicated than mere evidence. That's it. Much more complicated. We're try I'm trying to help you see that faith and doubt goes beyond what we can explain or find true evidence for. In reality, when it comes to faith and doubt in the most important things of life, we are talking about an internal disposition by which we interpret the evidence. You see? Not simply the evidence. The fact, here, let me just say it right here. The fact that we are all dealing with the same basic evidence of life and yet have come to dramatically different conclusions about how we should live clues us in to the relative nature of faith and doubt. We just don't often take time to contemplate it. So let me just end with this by acknowledging that all of us come to this discussion from different places, okay? For some of us, uh, this is just not very encouraging. <laughs> You're thinking, uh, Chris, I've never doubted. I've never needed evidence, and I'm not skeptical, and this is not helping me. Well, listen, I I'm serious. I, I guarantee some of you are saying, dude, if that's you, that's awesome. Maybe this conversation is so that you can learn to be patient with those who do doubt. Maybe it's not about you today in that way. Maybe for you today, God wants to fill your heart with compassion and patience and mercy for those who are racked with doubt about who Jesus is. Because for someone who says, well, I've never struggled with doubt, the temptation is to become self-righteous over those who struggle. What's our position then towards those who doubt? If you've never struggled through your own intellectual questions, you might think this whole thing's a waste of time. And when you talk to friends or family or uh, uh, friends or family members who have doubts, your knee-jerk reaction may be, get it together, man. Come on, it's as clear as day. Just believe, for goodness sake. Look, some of you have experienced this. Some of you had frustration in your heart when it comes to those in your family whom you love who can't get, wrap their minds around who Jesus is and, and get on board with Jesus, right? And it fills your heart with frustration. Frustration. Listen, uh, the human heart is slow to believe, even when we stare evidence in the face. But what I'm trying to point out to you is there are other forces at play when it comes to faith. But this is my question. Will an unsympathetic position of get it together help them? No, it will be divisive. 
And God may want to use you in the process, but if your lack of patience, if you're frustrated, your lack of patience is only going to alienate them from you in that process. And secondly, I wonder if your impatience with the process of people's doubts is really just revealing your own feelings of inadequacy when it comes to having answers to questions to those doubts. According to Jude 1, there's a biblical position towards those who doubt. Do you know that? There's a biblical position towards those who doubt. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. I'd say many of us would say, when I brought my doubts to my Christian friends, that was not my experience. I did not feel like they were merciful, but rather I felt the opposite. Can I say, if that's been your experience, will you accept my apology on behalf of Christians that mean well? They mean well. They're just sometimes a little insecure in their faith. And they don't have the ability to love people through doubts and struggles. So if that's been your experience, I just want to say, I'm sorry. And as a church, can we just agree as a group of friends to play the long game in this process? To, to not stifle down people when they come up with honest, authentic questions and say, hey, this, this is a safe place for you to work through your doubts. Because the reality is, as little as we want to admit it, all of us are working through our own doubts. All of us are working through our own doubts that Jesus is, in fact, trustworthy. And if you weren't, you wouldn't still be struggling with sin. No, you are. You are still working through your doubts that Jesus is trustworthy, that he is who he says he is, right? All of us are. We're all in the same boat. And can we just agree to first and foremost, let others articulate and verbalize doubts and questions without booing them out of the room? Imagine people who could come to a place and say, I've got authentic questions about this Jesus. And we say, tell us. Yes, why? Dude, I agree. Yeah, that's hard for me too. But this is what I found out about Jesus, that I, I think he's credible. And if you look at the gospels and if you actually read how he dealt with people, I think you'll be inspired. But dude, we're not opposed to doubt. We're not saying that you can't have doubts. To, you have to believe first to belong. We say, dude, God loves despite your doubt. <laughs> His love is just as strong, right? And so I have two main hopes for us as we explore this. That doubters will be brought in and that skeptics would find almost a red carpet rolled out for them and they would feel loved and welcomed. And that those who've never had the guts to ask hard questions of their faith would grow in that and would grow brave knowing that God is strong enough to handle your, threat, your, your doubts, that he's not threatened by your doubts. Uh, but cards on the table, at the end of the day, uh, I want you to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is who he says he is and that he is in fact trustworthy. Let's come to the table. Stay right there. Hold on, I'm gonna read us uh, the communion liturgy. Uh, when, when the guys are on the water and, and Jesus says to them, take heart, same thing he says in John 16, he says, um, I've said these things to you that in you, you may have peace. And he says this, in the world, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Um, and if you're here today and it seems like the world's pressing down on you and your knees feel weak when it comes to faith and your ability to believe in Jesus, can we pray for you? Um, if, if circumstances are overwhelming you right now, if the waters you're sure are going to take you down, man, Lean on some other people here who love you and want to pray with you about the circumstances. Let me pray for us. Jesus, um, would you strengthen weak knees today in the name of Jesus? 
God, would you um, bolster faith? God, would you give, would you straighten backs and cause us to walk upright with confidence that you are who you say you are? God, and would you also use this place to call in the doubters and the skeptics? God, that they might come to know you as, as you are, that they might start to walk in the light as you're in the light. Would you use us, God, um, to snatch people out of doubt and into faith? We love you, Lord. You name me pray these things. Amen. Amen. Have an excellent week, guys. We'll see you next time. Thanks for coming.